Hi everyone and welcome to the new edition of My Inspiration, a podcast series from HMV. In this series we give musicians, actors, filmmakers and writers the chance to take a welcome break from talking about themselves and instead talk about their greatest inspiration, someone who has been a big influence on their lives and informed their own work. I'm your host Tom Goodman and I'm delighted to welcome you to the first episode in our third season. I'm joined today by producer James Forian and today's guest. Our guest today began her career in 2006 as part of acoustic pair Automan with friend Ben Langmaid. Over time, the duo took their sound away from its folky origins and into something more electronic, and it had a new name to go with it, LaRue. Their debut single, Quicksand, arrived at the tail end of 2008, and quickly won critical praise on a whole new fan base. A debut album, 2009's self-titled effort, arrived not long after. It sold over 2 million copies, propelled by hit singles Bulletproof and In For The Kill. A follow-up, 2014's Trouble In Paradise emerged, a process that also saw the departure of Langmaid. Touring was short for that record, with our guests wanting to get back to work on new material. That new material is out now with new album Supervision, and we'd like to welcome her to the podcast to talk about it, as well as her greatest inspiration. Please welcome Ellie Jackson. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Um, I'm very well, thank you, yeah. So, Supervision, um, first new record in, in six years. Um, you must be excited that it's going to come out. I'm excited, but I'm also mildly frustrated. <laughs> um, yeah, six years wasn't the plan. I have actually made another record in that time and sort of threw it away for millions of reasons. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very nice to finally have some music actually coming out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you said there's an album that obviously didn't make it. I mean, was, was that literally half the process and then you started again for three years, three years? Yeah, that was three years. And then this took four months. So I wished I wish this had happened just after Trouble in Paradise and your lovely introduction. Um but it didn't <laughs> because I hadn't learned all those lessons yet that life obviously wanted to teach me then and there and not and not any later, not any sooner apparently. <laughs> it just had to be then. <laughs> so how was making was well, it's a four month period? I mean how how was making the record? Was it a fun record to make in the end? Yeah, it was a really fun record, but it was just it's kind of because it's come out of a big learning process, it was after I sort of ditched all the things that I didn't need in my life, it's been kind of, kind of like a catharsis and it's been, it was incredibly easy, like almost so easy, it was almost like a piss take. Do you know what I mean? It was almost like, oh, hang on a minute, why is it so easy now? Why has it been so difficult before? Um, and, but really it's all just come because... I've learned a lot of lessons and I did need to work on my own. And I think the reason why I needed to, you know, I finally learned that, but it's taken me a long time. And actually, even in the beginning of my career, when I was working with Ben, I really did actually want this, always wanted to be a solo artist. I never wanted to share like I've ended up sharing collaboratively. And that's actually because it's not really true to what I want. I think it stood in the way of the the work process flow, if that makes any sense. Um, But in a way that I think a lot of people would say, well, that's quite extreme, that it stood in the way that much, but it really has. And actually me being able to make all the decisions on this album and just make it in my house as well, I think that's made a really, really big difference. 
um, the working environment's been very important for me. So, yeah, it was an absolute joy, and it was very quick. It was almost too quick. I loved it so much that actually I wish it had gone on for a lot longer, in a way. And you worked with Dan Carey on this album. Yes, I worked with Dan Carey at the end. He, I told him that I was... I told him that I'd been making a record for three years, and he was kind of like, okay, yeah, you're right, that's already too long. You know, like, that's already way too long. And I think... Even as it stood at that point, this album's probably still come out almost before that one was going to end <laughs> up coming out. So it's kind of weird. But I told him about that, and he was like, look, obviously you're getting into a bad pattern again because nothing should take this long. And um, he said, if you can keep any of the songs and add to it, let me know, and then we can have a listen. But it turned out that I, because I was working sort of collaborative, collaboratively with somebody, that I couldn't do that because it's not just up to me. Um, and actually, even though at the time that didn't seem like a blessing, it was a blessing. Um, and then I started writing new material, started with Do You Feel? Um, and I played that an automatic driver to Dan and he was like, what's the problem? We'll just carry on doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, this is great. I love this. Um, he really loved automatic driver, especially. And he just said, well, I'm around in, I'm around in April, so why don't we just do it in April? This is in February of 2018. And I was kind of like, are you being serious? Oh, I'm supposed to do this in three, four months. He's like, yeah, I am being serious. You kind of have to do it in three or four months. You can't fuck about anymore, you know? <laughs> um, and he's like, well, you've done these two tracks already. I don't see why it's so impossible. It's not like you haven't got loads of emotions running around at the moment. You just ditched an album and broke up with your partner of 10 years. What, you've got nothing to write about, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> Real talk. I, yeah, I was like, okay, you've kind of got a point. He's like, if you can't, you're almost like if you can't write an album now, you never will. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And he's actually really got a point. Um, and then, yeah, it was kind of like vomiting for the next three months. It was, but in a really nice way. <laughs> <laughs> it's an eight-track record. Yeah, um, short. Was that what you wanted? Uh, it's what I finished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really like... A, I really hate long albums. Like, I don't care how talented you are. 12 tracks is, like, enough. Like, maximum 12 tracks is enough, I feel. Like, you know, if you imagine putting a record on, which most people don't, but if you do imagine putting a vinyl record on, you know, six tracks per side, especially at the length of some of my songs, my songs are like five, six, seven minutes long, a lot of them, you know what I mean? Like, and I think, actually, even though it's only eight tracks, it's still, it's still at the exact LP length. It's like 48 minutes or whatever. So and the ideal time for an LP is like... 45 minutes so without cramming stuff on so I feel like it's classic record length but obviously in recent times you know with streaming services and stuff it's all about feeding you a fucking algorithm <laughs> and um, you know people are doing like 24 track albums just because of that but I, I feel like unless all the tracks are as good as each other I'm not going to put them out I, I just I can't do it and also yeah I did have to like I felt like I'd expressed all the th things I needed to express at the time, like at that time, like the world that this album lives in, it was just that time, you know, and that's what I got out of that time. So it's your own label this time, kind of set up. How's that all gone? Has that been good? Good fun? It's been, yeah, it's been, it's kind of easier and harder at the same time. Like it's harder because 
there is like not one single element of glam involved whatsoever. You know, I think part of the thing when, pardon me, you sign a record contract when you're younger to like a major label, they manipulate you via compliments and then they manipulate you via money and shiny things. And then you find out 10 years later, you're like, why haven't I recouped? I don't understand. And it's like all those hotels and all those cars and cabs and things that they were, you know, that kind of life. It's just when you have your own record label, obviously you would never okay that. You'd just be like, well, I don't need that. I'd rather save the money. So that's been quite a big change. And I'd say that it's a much better environment creatively to live in. But I think if you're the kind of artist that needs a kind of ego stroking or like a glam lifestyle, it probably won't work out for you. Um, But I think in all other respects, it's... It's just so much better that the knowledge that you have of everything, the money being spent, why it's being spent, where it's being spent, how much you have to pay back, because there's obviously still investment from a from a, um, a label services company called Believe. Um, but I think if you can handle the responsibility and you've got enough ideas as well, then it can really, really work. And it has for me, because at least now, when I come up with a video idea or a photo shoot idea, they go, okay, this is how much money you have left in the photo shoot bank. This is how much money you have left in the video bank. And you just decide how to spend it. Nobody argues with you. Nobody goes, I don't think that's a very good idea. I think it's a bit rubbish. Nobody says that because it's not theirs to say that about. Um, So I think for me it works perfectly. But I think if you're the kind of person that leans on a label for creative ideas and A&R and stuff like that, it it won't work for you. But I've I've learned a fuck of a lot through doing it it's been great and you're out on the road um starting next month um is that kind of the start of a busy year of touring or are you still kind of seeing how much you want to do i'm sort of seeing how much i want to do just not because i don't want to do it but just because i'm very aware of like i want to create more music like don't get me wrong i like being on tour but i've just found something really special and really I've never really had before and already you know I finished this album in summer of 2018 already we're talking that's like a year and a half ago you know um we redid some of the mixes uh the summer of 2019 but that doesn't really count as being creative you know I've and I've got loads of new ideas knocking around I say loads for me that's like four um (laughs) half an album, um, <laughs> <laughs> knocking around that I really, really, really want to get into. I'm like chomping, champing, whatever the expression is, at the bit. Mm-hmm. And um, I I would like to get back in the studio. I, I, I think those days of being on tour all year, you know, unless you're a stadium artist or, or your label's pushing you or someone's pushing you to do it, which, again, nobody is anymore, mm. then I don't sort of kind of see the point apart from making money. Obviously, you want to go and play your record around various territories but then once you've done that I'd rather just get back in the studio to be honest so I'm, I'm kind of trying to balance it out at the moment but we are doing festivals and stuff like that yeah okay well we've got you here to talk about your your inspirations so um do you want to tell us who you've chosen uh yeah I've chosen Nile Rogers. most people would know him initially through Chic, but there's a whole lot more to discuss I mean is that how you discovered him I don't entirely remember I think one day I realized that like every amazing record that's ever been made he was involved in and I was like no it can't be that one as well not that as well not why by Carly Simon not this not that I mean it's just endless 
it's 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 kind of unbelievable how much stuff he had his fingers in you know mm. it's mad and then obviously Sheik on top of that I think Sheik was probably how I first you know discovered him and then it was like whoa hang on a minute he did all this and then they find out about Let's Dance and you know I mean Duran Duran I'm less bothered about but you know then even Duran Duran just the spread's mental do you know what I mean so I think that for me with him it's fascinating because he's managed to sort of straddle being an artist and being a writer and writing lyrics and being an arranger and a composer and also producing for other people and being able to be kind of objective about other people's work, which I think is quite a rare combination. I, that's why I've chosen him. So when you were kind of starting to write songs, I mean, are they the, can, do they bear any resemblance to the kind of songs you write now or was it with an acoustic guitar? I mean, how are you kind of first getting going? I actually still write songs, start songs in the same way that I used to. So I always used to start on acoustic guitar, like in my bedroom or in my parents' kitchen when everyone was asleep. Um, and now I pretty much just start everything on guitar as well, but it's just that I use an electric guitar just because I prefer playing an electric switched off than I do playing a loud acoustic. I don't know why, it just seems so loud now. Mm. Once you've been playing an electric guitar switched off, the acoustic guitar's just like, why is it so loud? It's like I want to turn the volume down. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty much all the same way, but then once I've got that groove, I've realised that my guitar playing is like, it's the... It's the core groove of every song. Whether I take the guitar away or not is irrelevant. That's how the groove starts. So even the groove to him for the kill, even though we sped it up and all the rest of it, it's an acoustic guitar groove. Like, if I played it to you on guitar now, you'd totally get where the keyboard riff came from. It's almost like I didn't have to write the keyboard riff because it was already locked into the guitar part and you just take the guitar away, you know? And with this album, I started everything pretty much bar, like, two tunes. I started... At uh, three tunes, sorry. I started everything on guitar and then I'd really just work that guitar groove and get the tempo and the groove really, 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 really right. And until that was exactly right, I wouldn't put anything else to it at all in Logic. I wouldn't touch it until that was right. Um, and then even if I end up taking the guitar away, that's still what I'd write the beat to and stuff like that. So everything hangs off the way it starts on guitar. Which is pretty much the Nile technique, isn't it? There's the groove and then you build from there. Yeah, I mean, I think I think all best music is made like that. I mean, I've never actually, like, I've never read his book. I don't really read, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, I've never read his book. I've never read about his writing process, but I've definitely, you know, I've absorbed his records, that's for sure. So how old are you when you start kind of hearing records that he's influenced for the first time? I mean, are you a teenager? Are you younger than that? No, I think it was... Um, it's later. It's like after the first album, I think. Like I'd obviously heard, she, you know, I'd heard like Sister Sledge and stuff before. It's not like I'd completely missed these tunes. But when I was younger, I would have seen them as sorry, excuse the term, but I would have seen them as gay. Do you know what I mean? I would have been like, this is like gay disco music. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't have liked it. I liked much harder, more jagged music when I was younger. But then, when I when I came out of the first album, I think I started realising that I didn't... At that time, I didn't listen to any music that sounded like my first album. I was like, this is so cold-sounding. Like, it's such an icy record, that first record I made with Ben. And I think that that started to not feel like me anymore at all, very, very quickly, like, very quickly. Um, is partly why me and Ben used to argue. Um... And I just was really into disco and all my friends were into rare disco and I was DJing rare disco 
And I just got into them. I mean, I wouldn't call Nile Rodgers Rare Disco. He was definitely the most commercial thing that I was listening to in that genre. But I was just became obsessed with disco. And you can't not learn about him if you're becoming obsessed with disco. It's just not possible. What do you think it was about it that grabbed you? Was it just the warmth, like you said? I think it's partly the warmth and it's yeah, the grooves. Like, obviously, Bernard. I mean, we could talk about... I could talk about Bernard all day as well. I mean, like, that's... It's them together, isn't it? Like, them separately, it's not quite the same situation. But but then, obviously, Niles' production is still brilliant. Um, but just the bass and guitar combination, the groove is just ridiculous. And I do... You know, I hate to bang on about it, but I, I really miss groove in mm. modern music. Like... I remember once I was talking to a producer, I won't mention his name, he's like a producer-writer, and he was just banging on quite angrily about how people crave the grid. I just wanted to kill him. You know what I mean? You know when you're like, no, people do not crave the grid, mate. They're not craving being told what to do by a computer. No one's craving that. But no, no, one, no one's craving that, sorry. You're so wrong, I don't even know where to start. But people do actually think this. They, they actually think that you know, now everyone's in quantized land and everybody just wants to hear everything as Logic wants it or as Pro Tools wants it or... Do you know what I mean? I'm like, so there's no personality of groove anymore? So that's it. No, there's no such thing as so-and-so's groove. Because back in the day, you used to have the James Brown groove, you used to have a Prince groove, you used to have a Stevie Wonder groove. They all... Even the Rolling Stones had their own groove. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Now, it's like everyone has the same one. You know, and it's the one that you just put on quantize and it just seems so fucked you know and this album's not it's like nothing's really quantized especially not in that way my god no it's not everything's moved around and placed if it is moved around in the computer it's moved around by a human it's not told where to go by a computer and all of the grooves of the beats are left looping on the drum machine none of them are cut up and then looped so it's actually an entire sort of drum machine performance from start to finish and same with the guitar and all the bass. None of it's even comped or edited. It's just one performance all the way down. And I think that's really important. And I'm determined to prove that people do actually want to listen to humans. <laughs> it's, it's mad, but I feel like it's still true. And I think, if anything, that's what I'm taking the most from him. Um, and their music is just the fact that actually brilliant pop music needs the personality of groove. And those records are full of it. You have a ghost played with him and have, recorded yeah. with him although I don't know if I've actually no I haven't actually recorded with him but for some reason that got out okay but I don't I don't know why <laughs> I don't know why it happened but it did you're not the first person to ask yeah. basically he came round I think I reached out to him oh I reached out so American <laughs> uh, <laughs> I take that back uh, I think I ended up getting in touch with him um, I can't actually totally remember how but we did manage to get in touch with him when we were making the second album and he was doing his like book stuff he just released his book oh that was it yeah I emailed him because I heard he was gonna die and I was like I can't have him die and not tell him how I feel it's just I don't know he probably doesn't care but I, <laughs> I really care <laughs> um and so I found out how to write to him and then he was like oh I love your music you know you're he just seemed to really like the tunes. And he was like, oh, yeah, you're, you know, you're a great artist, blah, blah, blah. Um, he was like, if it was the 80s, you'd be massive. I was like, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the wrong decade. Um, 
And then he ended up coming and hanging out at the studio at like 2 a.m. because he doesn't sleep, he's an insomniac. Um, and he came to the studio at like 2 a.m. and played every sheet riff he'd ever written on my guitar, which was quite... Just quite mm. great, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, we just we hung out and talked, played him a couple of the new tunes uh, from the second album. He really liked them, um, and then we ended up chatting quite a lot after that. But we never actually recorded anything together. And then he asked me to play with him at Montreux Jazz Festival, um, but that was also quite weird because he just was he'd set himself like way too much of a big task and there's like 20 artists or something and he had like 24 hours to rehearse them and I was like this is never going to work it's just not possible it's just not possible even if you don't sleep that's yeah, quite difficult yeah it's, it's just not possible um, and yeah it was kind of fun but at the same time there was just actually no time to really do anything properly and I'm quite funny, funny about things being done properly and it just it wasn't mm. happening <laughs> um and yeah, he ended up like miming to Bulletproof or something, which was really strange. Yeah. Um, but and then I forgot the whole second verse because I just thought the whole thing was really weird. So it was a, <laughs> basically, it was a complete disaster. Um, and Quincy Jones was side of stage, and Nile Rogers was pretending to play guitar behind me, and I was like, I just can't deal with this right now. I need to leave. Um, so yeah, that was like an interesting trip. But yeah, it was, it was very nice to like get to know him a bit and talk to him and stuff. I mean, was he the sort of now Rogers that everyone gets on TV. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh yeah, he just he's just like story after story after story. It's like having a really exuberant granddad. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's pretty good. He's told me a lot of brilliant stories about Madonna and Bowie and all sorts of things I shouldn't repeat. Uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean I guess that's the back catalogue bit that people know less about, which is obviously working with other artists. You've got Bowie, you've got Grace Jones who Sample off in Trouble in Paradise and in Excess and the B-52s. I mean, do you think that's people going looking for a sound or just people don't look at he makes hits, let's get together? I think with him it is a, I think it is a sound thing. I mean, but I don't know, yeah, he also, this is the thing, he's also a great writer, mm. so it's like, I mean, that Madonna record is, you know, like Material Girl. I mean, he played us, maybe it wasn't him, maybe somebody else played it to me, I can't remember, but I have this memory of hearing part of backing track of Material Girl and again like this is what I mean about pop music like it's still pop music and it's so accessible it's not like it's really clever and you have to be like really wanky to understand it it just sounds to everybody else like pop music but if you listen to each individual part in his music it's it's not simple they're weird chords they're like really really weird chords it's really jazzy what's going on kind of behind the veil. And I think that's another thing that kind of really inspires me and I, and I, I feel like it's something that shouldn't be left behind in the past, you know, because nowadays the way they talk about pop music is like, you know, yeah, but if it's not just like three notes, then like no one will get it. Um, and I just, he never subscribed to that and neither did Prince and all of those people. And I, I think that's something that we could, could all like take a lesson from. It's like... You can still do things that are musically rich, really musically rich, and you can also still that can still be pop music. Like it doesn't have to be one or the other. Do you go back to his records when you're trying to get in writing mode? I mean, is that how music works for you, or do you not listen to other people when you write? No, I actually don't listen to anything when I write. Um, I think I made that mistake on the second album, and kind of on the first, except it didn't really have a negative impact on the first album. 
Um, but I think it's very easy to get lost in a world of references, like where you're just, you're kind of, you keep going back, like on the second album, I just kept going back to like Genius of Love and stuff like that. But like, it was obsessive. And like Grace Jones, like sitting there, you're finishing a mix and then going like, oh, is the mix, you know, is the bottom end similar to our favourite record or whatever. It's just like, oh, it's never going to be because it's like 30 years later and like everything's different and like you shouldn't try and make a record that sounds like that again anyway because it's been done. So what are you doing? You know, it's like, I just feel like it's a rabbit hole. You don't need to go down. Um, if you worship a record, worship it, fine. But, like, it's already been made. You didn't make it. Get over it. You know what I mean? Like, you'd, uh, I think there's quite a big lesson to be learnt there. So I know I I have done it, and I don't do it anymore. Um, obviously, sometimes you might just hear a tune and go, oh, I'd quite like to put a bit of that flavour in something at some point, because, actually, I've never really approached something from that angle before. But that's enough. Not like I'm going to sit there and listen to it, a being it kind of thing, you know. So, so no, I don't. But I think they've all gone in. His records have gone in, and I've absorbed them over the years. And if any part of those records wants to come out of me, then it does, you know. But it's not because I'm trying to make it. We always ask guests for kind of um, an unearthed gem. What is a bit of the catalogue that people think can kind of get skirted over? I mean, do you think there's a bit of his career that people don't give enough credence to? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't think there is. I mean, for me, my, I guess the rarer track that people sometimes don't know is by him would be Why by Carly Simon. I think that's like, that's the, you know, the underground lover's favourite. Um, yeah, Carly Simon, obviously she's an important artist to a lot of people, but there's a lot of people who probably don't get past you've got the love for the James Bond one. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's... I don't think I ever have. I mean, you're so vain, and that is kind of it, really. Um, I'm definitely not like a Carly Simon fan, and I think that's why it's interesting. I mean, why he chose her for the track I mean, is, is quite weird, really. But it's kind of genius as well. It's, it's like them coming up with the I'm coming out thing, you know. That was just like a, him and Bernard talking backstage and being like, hey, I've just had this idea, and she's like coming out, and she's like, but everyone will think I'm gay, and he's like, no, it'll be amazing. Yeah. It's like, how have you had this vision where that will definitely work and not be weird for Diana, and it's not, and now she's like the biggest gay icon ever. It's just, it's just like, how are you seeing that? How are you seeing that far forward as a visionary or, or as a mentalist? I can't quite work it out. He's either just nuts and it works, yeah. or he's a, a real visionary, but you know, even choosing Carly Simon on that track is a, is a weird selection and also he I spoke to him about it because obviously I was obsessed with obsessed with it and I spoke to him and I was like oh I just love that track just tell me everything about it just tell me everything about the process just everything so he told me everything about it and he said that it was a nightmare doing the vocal um because I was having voice problems at the time and he was like oh it's okay it took Carly like a week to do that vocal <laughs> I was like okay that makes me feel better <laughs> um but then he also said uh that that song's inspired by Pastor Dutchie and I was like what? <laughs> what are you talking about? So, yeah, there wouldn't be a why by Carly Simon if there wasn't a past the duchy. Mm. I'm like, that's just a weird reference. Yeah. Like, and he heard that song. And as a black guy, for yeah. me, it's really weird because I'm like, obviously, he's kind of really American black guy. But for me, growing up in Brixton, I'm like, the fact that you think past the duchy is like a great reggae tune yeah. is hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's all right. But... It's not exactly like the peak of reggae, is it? Would you like the chance to work with him or do you think you've now found your own groove? And 
talking about dream collaborators is a bit pointless. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I feel like, I just feel like I'm not one of those artists where that's like particularly a necessity. Like I, I do have my own sound and I feel like actually what would happen if I worked with somebody else is A, they would get really annoyed <laughs> because I'd be like, can I do that? Can I do that? Sorry, could I just do that? Actually, sorry, can I do that? <laughs> um, and that. And that. Uh, I just, I feel like they'd be like, I'm just sat at the back of the room now, okaying what you've done. Do you know what mm. I mean? That's, that's probably where we'd end up. Like, there wouldn't be a lot, genuinely, there wouldn't be really anything for them to do apart from help with recording some objective decisions and mixing and, like, adding flavours, like additional production, which is exactly what I've got Dan Carey for. And Dan Carey's like my brother. Like, why bother starting a relationship with somebody else when I've already got the closest relationship I could have with, like, almost my favourite producer on the planet? So I'm like, it's difficult. And I also feel like it's not the 80s. Like, yeah, if it was the 80s and I was big then, yeah, he'd be my dream collaborator in a way. And we could maybe make a record together. But I don't feel like it's that time anymore. And I just, I feel like, respect it and leave it kind of where it is. It's also, we'll be going looking for a sound, I guess, because that, that Daft Punk record, they yeah. knew exactly what they wanted from him. And, yeah, exactly. And he gave it to them. Exactly. Then, yeah. You know, and also, if I couldn't play guitar, again, it would be a whole different ballgame. I'd be like, can you come and play guitar on my records? But I'd play guitar... Not as well, obviously, but it's yeah. quite similar. You know, it's not like, and I didn't, that's not in, even intentional, but I've always been obsessed with rhythm since I was like five. So it's like, I just struggle to know what on earth we'd be doing together, really. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it would make any sense. I already feel like there's, in, there's enough of his influence in my records. I don't feel like there needs to be more. And when you're kind of in between things and listen to stuff, are you listening to contemporary music or are you still going back to the same? Well, never, not the same, but I don't but have different. time for contemporary music. Yeah. I mean, like, in more ways than one. Yeah. Um, I think I find a lot of the way that modern records are recorded and mixed, like sonically, I find them hard to listen to on like a textural level. That's without even hearing this, listening to the song, the artist, anything to do with the way they look or what they stand for, anything. It's just literally on a textural level. I'm like... I don't like the way it sounds, like, literally. That is a slight problem that I have. It's not with every modern record, obviously. Like, I don't feel like that about Anderson Pack. Some electronic stuff, like Gabe Guernsey, I don't feel like that about. But we're not really talking about, like, I make pop music, but I don't really feel like I can listen to modern pop music. If I'm going to listen to pop music, it's going to be from the 60s, 70s, 80s, really. Um... Or, actually, I think Justified was, like, the last modern pop record that I liked. You know, I think Pharrell's records sound good, but I think sometimes I'm still not that interested, even though I can respect them. It's not like I want to download it and listen to it all the time. Like, I hear it on the radio and I think, that's good. It's of a good quality. But it's not like I'm like, oh, I want to listen to that track all day. I think that takes quite a lot for me. Um... Yeah, I just go back and forth between things I've already loved and new things. At the moment, the main stuff that I'm teaching myself is actually um, mostly like African and like Turkish music and stuff. I'm listening to a lot of um, weird African music, basically, and I listen to a lot of dub. But yeah, no, I do. I do find it hard. I think, especially because I already have like a pop 
so much of a pop flavour about what I do. I can't undo that. But I don't really see the point of making it more. Like, it's already enough, I feel. And I feel like actually having other textures and other influences of things that are less pop and a bit more strange or a bit more left field makes my pop more interesting rather than listening to a bunch of other pop. It doesn't make any sense to me. Because I guess that's the tendency with, um, with other pop records. Because there are so many few in-demand producers... You can just sort of see a version of things going round mm-hmm. and taking different tracks on people. Yeah, it's just all the same. I mean, it's getting to the point where I've started a game where I can guess exactly what's going to come in next in the track. I can guess what type of hi-hat, even to the level of, like, where the sample of the hi-hat came from, like, what kind of hi-hat it's going to be, what kind of snare it's going to be, whether it's going to have a clap with it or not how the groove's going to go before it's even started, what chords are going to come in. When music's that predictable, something's fucking wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that is... I don't care to listen to something. I already know how it goes before I've even listened to it. I just don't see the point. But apparently, that's all people can digest because we're all thick as pig shit. But we're not. You know what I mean? We're not. I just... I find that hard at the moment. Like, I first saw somebody yesterday's, like, billions of streams... Never heard of them in my life. And then I looked at their music and I was like, thank God, it's awful. You know, and you just, who the fuck is listening mm. to this? But they are. Someone is. Billions of people are, apparently. Mm. I don't know who they are. <laughs> so I don't know. I think I, I've, I've always, to be honest, felt very disconnected from modern music. And even, even when I was a kid, this isn't a new thing because of my age or anything or because of my career. It's, when I was 12, I didn't like it, you know. I was just, I always thought older music was better. I was listening to Joni Mitchell and stuff, and I was like, this music is crap, you know, even then. So I think there's no change there, really. And I guess that's the thing with Niall's career as well. Like, he has spanned the decades, but seems to bring him into, into things rather than moving with the times in terms of sound. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's, I think that's a really important thing as an artist. I think... You know, every time Madonna reinvented herself, it wasn't like to conform to something that was big. You know, it's not like when she did Ray of Light, it was like, well, obviously everything sounds like this now. Do you know what I mean? It was like, what are you doing? Um, And I think you're either that kind of person that changes your sound so much that it's just like there's just so many new versions of you and it doesn't necessarily relate to the things going on around you, but but it can influence them. Or you always bring your flavour to something. And I think... Hopefully, if and when I produce more in the future, uh, whether it's for other people or not, it will be about there being a LaRue flavour that somebody wants in their record or whatever, because I have my own sound now. Even though it has other people's things in it, it's basically mine. Like, there's, there's only really one way to describe the sound of the new record and the first record and whatever. You can say what the references are, but at the end of the day, the end result is still the sound of LaRue. And I think that's a really nice place to be in and I would definitely I would definitely be in that side of the game for sure in production and I think you're absolutely right it's about what he does is bring bring that to other things and I think that's really nice so finally I mean this is a difficult question and we always ask it every time but what is his ultimate masterpiece now that can be a record or a song or whatever but it's kind of is there one thing that you need to come down to would it be chic would it be Anything he's worked really on with hard. other people. It's very difficult. It is very difficult because there's just so much. I mean, my usually my favourite, certainly for years, used to be um, I Want Your Love. 
that was kind of the one for me. I also really like thinking of you. I mean, in lots of ways, you could say Let's Dance would actually kind of be the masterpiece, really. As, as a body of work, I would say that's the masterpiece because I find the Chic records can be a mixture of amazing and awful in equal measure. Like, you'll get one track that's, like, the best track you've ever heard and then one track that's, like, for me, just personally, almost unlistenable. Um, no disrespect to the genius, but, like, you know, that that is the case. Um, whereas I feel like Let's Dance Apart from Ricochet, which I absolutely hate, um, <laughs> uh, is... It is such a brilliant record. The production, the energy of it, I think, is, for me, the thing that really stands out. Like, the energy of modern love um, is incredible. And then you've got Let's Dance and you've got China Girl and you've got... I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I think the combination of those two working together was a pretty special thing. And you can see what Bowie's gone looking for. Yeah, of course. he He needed a big pop record and he wasn't making them. You know, and it's it's really funny hearing our talk about uh, Let's Dance because he just literally described it as, you know, Bowie had this, like, kind of half idea. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was like... Dun, 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 like, really bluesy, really boring, you know. He just describes it as if it was like basically the worst song ever. Yeah. Um, really dull. And then, you know, me and Bernard and um, Bob Clearmountain, or whatever his name is, um, just basically made it fucking amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then he came in and was like, wow, you know, not, how much of this is true, I don't know, but it's, yeah, it's, uh, it was amusing to hear about it. Um, but, yeah, he obviously, he was in a... Bowie's Bowie, like he does a kind of, he does his thing, it's actually quite jangly, you know, it's quite weird, you know, and he needed to make money, uh, I can relate to that, um, and yeah, he, he made the right, he really made the right choice, he said the main, the main reference for that album was a photograph of Little Richard getting out of a car, which I really like as well. And I think if you're a great producer, and I, Dan's like this as well, and I understand it, like an image can be just as inspiring as any piece of music. And it was the fact that he was like, this is what I want the record to sound like, this picture of Little Richard. <laughs> and it, it kind of does as well. And that's where all the style influence comes from as well. So I think they were meant to work together and it was a great combination, yeah. Well, thank you very much for letting us hear your inspiration and best of luck with supervision. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, then why not join us next time when we'll be talking to Frank Carter and Dean Richardson. They're going to be opening up about their love of Nick Cave. To get that and all the other episodes of My Inspiration, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Full information on today's episode, as well as all the others, can be found on our website. Just visit hmv.com forward slash podcast for full details. Mm-hmm.